Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 88 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and uh, today we're going to conclude our, um, I guess, nine-part series um, on following Jesus in the 21st century. Um, we're going to continue looking at um, the importance and practice of love, which I guess this this part of the series has been, what, four four episodes, three or four episodes, just just talking about love. Um, last week, um, if you haven't, if you haven't heard last week, if you haven't heard the whole series, just start at the beginning. This is, all this kind of builds on each other. It's sort of a theological and practical look at why we follow Jesus, what it, what it, what it means, what's the biblical, scriptural, theological background for all that. And then how does this actually look in the world? So start at the beginning, if you hadn't. If you hadn't seen all this or listened to all this, um, I I think it's pretty good stuff. I would think that, of course. Um, but last week we talked about loving one another, in primarily in the church as believers, um, looking at Jesus' words in John 13, 35, where he says, this is how the world will know that he, we're his disciples, by the love that we have for one another. Today, I want to I want to move outward and uh, talk about extending that love outward to the larger world. And not surprisingly, um, we're going to start with Jesus. So stick around and let's um, let's just dive right in. I'm going to have some coffee while you're sticking around. Okay, I'm not, uh, not. I haven't had enough coffee, so I'm gonna have a little more coffee here. Um, it's very hot, very hot. Okay, so I want to start, um, of course, with Jesus. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, which is a story I think probably most of us know really well, um, he's talking about a father who in the Middle Eastern culture of the day would have been a, a, a senior figure in the local community and would take his dignity very seriously. And yet, when he sees his scoundrel of a son who's wasted his whole inheritance coming back in the distance, the father throws his dignity into the air and runs down to the road to greet him, throws his arm around him, brings a robe, have it has it have it, has the robe put on him, brings new sandals for his feet, puts a ring on his finger, and just won't even hardly listen to his to the son's words of contrition and repentance. He just embraces him back into his love and back into his family. There's a there's a very old hymn from the 1600s, uh, written by a man named Samuel Crossman called My Song is Love Unknown. And I'll put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video where you can learn a little more, bit more about the song and actually hear it. It's very old. I, I don't know of any churches. It's a British hymn. Maybe they sing it more in the in some of the churches in the UK, but 
I've never actually heard it here in any of the churches I've been a part of, but there's a very, some very great lines in this, in this hymn. Um, the first lines are this, my song is love unknown, my savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. That's what I think of when I think of the prodigal son. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. That's what's going on, I think, not only in this parable, but in so many other parables in the Gospels. Parable after parable are about the great, unthinkable, unstoppable love of God. And that's the context within which we have to think what does it mean that Jesus did this love thing and what does it mean for us to do the same thing in our world? We have to think about it from within that that context because there's all these little vignettes in the Gospels that show us in important ways this is how Jesus loves. For instance, and we're going to walk through some of these, at the end of Luke chapter 13 the and the, the parallel passage in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to to her. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is a helpful passage, I think, because because people sometimes think, well, you know, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then this world ought to really be a different place. And then we hear Jesus saying, but you were not willing. Because love cannot, will not compel. Love, real love, does not coerce or intimidate or bribe or compel another person into doing what we want them to do, even if it is in their best interest. Love doesn't go there. Love invites. It does not compel A lot of us have yet to learn that, I think. Jesus loved his people. And the the words of judgment that that we see on his lips occasionally against uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida and all the others that had resisted his message and ultimately Jerusalem itself, those are words of sorrow, not of bitter anger. And if there's a hard tone in any of this, it's because He's seen the hard looks on the faces of people who are saying, we don't want your kingdom vision. Your kingdom vision means we have to give up our kingdom vision. Which, of course, is what repentance means. Stop doing things your way and and trust me for a different way instead. And while we're here, this is going to be longer than I intended, but I feel like it's important to talk about this. This is really important to understand. Today, when, when we tell people or when people hear us talk about um, repent and believe, right? I think what most people hear when we when we when they hear the words repent and believe, I think what most people hear is they hear that as a as a summons to give up personal sin and accept a, some kind of body of Christian dogma or some scheme of religious salvation. That's not exactly what Jesus means here when he says that. As as in so many things. In the New Testament, it's it's helpful for us to try to understand what 
people heard by the by those words and phrases in the in Jesus context in the first century, the world of the first century. So when Jesus says to repent and believe in the good news toward the, the beginning of his ministry there in Mark chapter one, what's interesting is that there is an almost exact parallel to that phrase in the Jewish writing, uh, the Jewish writer Josephus. Now, Josephus, if you don't know, he was a uh, he was a Jewish aristocrat and historian who was born just a few years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And in AD 66, he's Josephus is, you know, in his 30s there. Um, just as the as the Jewish revolt was about to begin, um, which would ultimately result in the destruction uh, and fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, Josephus at this time is a young army commander. And he was tasked, he was sent from Jerusalem to speak with some, to go up to Galilee and speak to some some um, uh, rebel leaders up there. And um, his task was to, to persuade the hot-headed Galileans to stop their, their mad rush to revolt against Rome and to trust him and the other Jerusalem aristocrats to kind of work out a better solution, probably some form of compromise. So when he gets to Galilee... And he sits down with his with his rebel leader up there. He says that what he told him that rebel leader was to give up his own agenda and to trust him, Josephus, instead. But the words he uses there are remarkably familiar to those of us who have read the Gospels. He told the rebel leader to repent and believe in me. And in Greek, that's the same phrase that Jesus used. And of course, what Josephus is saying there was not, um, you know, repent of your sins and, and trust me for your salvation. That wasn't what he was saying at all. What he was saying was, you need to give up your agenda, your way of doing stuff, your your war of national liberation or whatever. And he says, I've, I've got a better idea than that. Come with me. And when you see it like that, you kind of get a, a, a picture of what those words sounded like in the world of the first century. So when Jesus told people to repent and believe in me, it makes sense to, th- to think of it in a similar way. And even if we end up thinking that Jesus maybe meant more than Josephus did, that there were indeed some religious and theological dimensions to his invitation, he certainly didn't mean less than that. Jesus was telling his hearers, to give up their agendas and to trust him for his way of being Israel, his way of bringing the kingdom, because he's he's talking to people who are looking for a rebellion against Rome, an armed revolution, a military victory. That's what they want for Jesus to be starting some sort of military um, coup against the Romans, a revolt. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes, and we've talked about this before, through the meek and the brokenhearted and the hungry for justice people and the peacemakers and the pure in spirit and the pure in heart. And and people hear that and they think, well, what kind of agenda is that? You know, how do you change the world with, with that? And Jesus sees to the heart of that and he says, and this gets us back to where we were just a minute ago in Luke 13, he says, I longed to gather you because Jesus can see this storm coming 
He sees that sooner or later this this giant Roman elephant is going to get fed up with the Jewish mouse gnawing in its toe and is going to do what, what the Romans did best, stomp the life right out of it. And Jesus could see that that was coming. And he says, when that comes, it's because you were not willing. And Jesus' great love is grieving over that, which is why in, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and following, when Jesus rides into the city on the, on the donkey, Luke tells us that he wept over the city. And one of the defining moments in Luke's gospel is that scene, Jesus riding in on that donkey in tears. And the words, the words that come out of his mouth at that point, point um, they, they, they just they seem like words that happen when somebody's weeping and sobbing. If only you had known, if only you'd realized that the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Now the enemies are going to come and destroy this whole thing because you did not know, you didn't recognize the day of your visitation. This is what it looks like when Israel's God comes back. He came back in love. He came back in tears. And he says, and you were not willing. And you, and you see it again. And again, the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, when Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and follow me. And we're told in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And of course, the young man went away. Dejected, we're told, because he had a lot of stuff. And this is the hard thing about love, that you love even when it's not going to be returned. Because it, it it's not love if it's just a deal. You know, I'll, I'll love you as long as you love me back. So after Jesus had done what he'd done, after Jesus had chosen that Passover and done the, the incredible thing that he did up there in the upper room, the Last Supper, the foot washing, you know, when Jesus wanted to, to explain to his followers what his death was all about. He didn't give them a theory or an exposition. He gave them a meal and a coded symbol. Because there are some things, I'm sure you know, if you think about it, there's some things you can, you can only say in a symbol. You know, you go to a, you go to a concert, maybe a, maybe a, a symphony or, or, or something, you know, really um, kind of special, and you, and you get the program, you know, they print out these beautiful programs and, and some bright music theorist has written a paragraph about how this, this symphony works and, and how the theme goes from the major to the minor and, and, and all this stuff. But, you know, just, just listen to the music. Because the music will oftentimes tell its own story much better than any, any kind of prose can. And it's the same with the meaning of Jesus' death, the foot washing and the breaking of bread. These are what love is all about. Okay, so more coffee. So after 
After all that was done, after Jesus had gone to the cross, and of course his disciples all thought that was a disaster, and it, and it was really at one level. It was it was only after the resurrection that they looked back and began to, to realize and piece together all the details that made it clear that Jesus won the victory on Good Friday and that they and we are now the people who are commissioned to live out of that. So what did they do? Right out of the gate, the little Jerusalem church, you know, they, they don't stop and think, okay, um, we see the big picture now. Now we've got to come up with a plan to, to implement this in the world. And, and uh, this is going to be really hard to kind of scale up to a wider level. So we need some, we need some plans and we need a, some structures of some, of some kind. They didn't think about any of that stuff. They just started selling their possessions and they get together and they take care of anyone who's in need. And in the book of Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, Luke tells us that there weren't any poor people among them because anyone who was in need was cared for by those who had something to contribute. And that, of course, looks back to Deuteronomy 15.4, an important piece of God's plan for Israel which commanded that because of God's blessings in the covenant community, that within that community, there were to be no people in need. And then we, we, we see how this started actually to work out because one of the first problems in the early church, early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, is the care of widows. And see, they're trying to figure out how to live together, how they can all live together as a family. And this is something I think we don't really understand as much as we should. Because of what Jesus accomplished, they're all part of one family now. And they're actually trying to figure out a way to live as one family. Have you ever imagined what that meant? In a world where where nuclear families and, and their nuclear families were probably much more extended than our nuclear families, but when their nuclear families suddenly all find out that they're getting together and there are dozens and even hundreds of them, and they're supposed to live all as one family in which everybody shares and looks after one another, because this is love. This is agape. And, and when the New Testament uses the word agape, and we talked a little bit about agape last week, Okay, it, it involves feeling and it involves emotion, but the first thing that it involves is hard cash because there are people who need caring for and caring for people takes effort and it takes money and it takes will and it takes some level of organization. And so in Acts chapter 6, they, they, they call the deacons, the, the seven, and they commission them to make sure that the distribution of food to those who can't work for themselves, you know, the aged, the, the widows, and, the, and so forth, that all of that happens expeditiously and that it happens fairly and that it happens equitably. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a whole section about who counts as a widow because already this is a, this is a problem in the early church. Sometimes I think we read First Timothy five and we think, well, you know, come on, Paul, this is this is all great and good, but this is stuff that happened way back then. I'd really, 
you explain to us a little more about justification by grace through faith because that's, you know, that's maybe more relevant. But actually, the practicalities of how you live together as a family has every bit as much to do with justification by grace through faith as the, the theological theory of it. Because here's the truth about all this. If, if you're not prepared to think through what it means to live as one body, as one family, then you haven't begun to understand what the New Testament is about. Remember, Jesus says at that, at that point in Mark chapter 3 when people come to him and say, your, mothers and your, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Remember what Jesus says? Jesus looks around and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Here they are. Anyone who does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And that, for a good Jewish boy, is kind of a radical saying. One of the most radical sayings in the Gospels. But what's going on here is, is the redefinition of family around Jesus. And family in the ancient world meant more than just the people you had blood ties to. It meant the, the people with whom you were bound. Not just in, the, in, in ties of the occasional Christmas card, you know, but in ties of actual mutual living together and sharing the common life. That's what family means. Now, we can see this going on in Paul's communities also. Um, Galatians chapter 2, we, we find the, the incident where Paul and Barnabas with Titus have come to Antioch to, from Antioch to Jerusalem because there's been a prophecy that there's going to be a famine in that part of the world. Now, you need to understand a little bit about geography here. Um, the, you have to understand the early church was separated geographically. So... Uh, I live here in southern Middle Tennessee, and I can get from here to Memphis in about four hours or so by car. It's a bit of a slog, but it's not it's not too big a deal. But to get to to that same distance, and or maybe a little more from Antioch to Jerusalem, you know, in that day and time, you, you really have to want to do that to to make that journey. That's a long way off, and yet. When these Christians up in Antioch hear that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, the first thing they think immediately, they think, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are, are, are really going to be in need because they know, right? They've been doing this crazy, risky, wonderful Jesus-shaped experiment where they've shared their possessing possessions with, with one another. They're living as a, as a big extended family. They're going to be in trouble. And so we can help them. And not only we can we help them, we must help them. And so one of the first really practical things that we find out about the early church is this translocal, trans-ethnic, trans-geographical sense of community that exists. And that is what is meant by agape. And so in Galatians chapter 2, when their, when their visit is over, Peter and James and John give, give Barnabas and, and Paul the right hand of fellowship when they've been discussing 
some of these different um, evangelistic ministries that they're going to have. But the one thing that they absolutely agree on is that we should go on remembering the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. See, this kind of thing is in the DNA of the church right from the very beginning. This is agape. This is what it means. Remember the poor. And if you, if you want to do a, a deep dive into, into understanding the uh, poverty as it existed in the first century and, and how the Christian community rose up to try to meet that, there's a great book by um, Bruce Longenecker, who is professor of early Christianity at Baylor. And the book is called Remember the Poor, Paul, Poverty, and, and the Greco-Roman World. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can look at that if you, if you want to. But for a lot of us, growing up in, in fairly middle-class Western church contexts, we didn't really talk about a lot of that. Oh, there were, there were people doing it. Where I, where I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, it was um, organizations like the, the Salvation, Salvation Army, uh, the City Rescue Mission, and, and there are other organizations like that um, in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. But, but in most churches, in my experience, that kind of stuff was a, was a, a, a tangential occasional thing. It wasn't just, wasn't something we thought about doing too much. And I think it's time we took that seriously again. Anyway, uh, moving on, um, with a sip of coffee, uh, in the middle. At the end of Galatians, Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul says, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. And there's the, there's the phrase, while we have opportunity, right? That's an important piece of this. But do you see what he's saying? Of course, you have an obligation to your Christian brothers and sisters. You have the obligation of agape love within your family. But the church must be known as the people who are generous just as God is generous. Generous to those outside. Because again, this is part of the church's DNA right from the very beginning. And so beginning to understand it this way, beginning to understand it this way, it's fascinating then in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul talks about love. And you have to remember, Paul was only in Thessalonica for about 10 minutes before he was driven out of town. A little more than 10 minutes, but he, he was there for a very short period of time before he was driven out of town. And he ends up in Athens after then, and he's, he's wringing his hands a little bit. You know, he's been forced to go there against his will, and he's wringing his hands a little bit because he's wondering how, how these people in Thessalonica, how these, how these new Christians in Thessalonica are getting on because he knows perfectly well that there's going to be persecution and that they'll be in trouble. And will they have held on? And will they still be living out the gospel in the way that, they, that, that he had modeled and shown them in that very short period of time he was with them? And so he says to them, as he writes this letter from Athens, he says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, he says, I know that you already love one another, but I want you to do so more and more. Now, what's he mean there? Does he mean 
I know that you already have these warm, fuzzy feelings about one another, so I want you to have even warmer and even fuzzier feelings about one another. Is that what he means? No, of course not. Yes, that, that'll come. The emotions will come because when you're sharing your life with, with others and they with you, you'll, you'll all face up to, to, to difficulties together. But there will be an amazing sense of mutual belonging that, that comes about within the, with, with the deep, rich emotions that go along within that. So the emotions will come, but that's not what Paul means here. What he means is, I know that you're already starting to do this business of agape, this sharing in practical terms with your with your strange new brothers and sisters. And we're and we're talking about, you know, these aren't all people that look alike, right? We're talking about slaves sharing with their masters and vice versa. We're talking about men and women on equal footing. We're talking particularly about Jews and Gentiles living together, learning to live together, struggling to learn to live together as brothers and sisters. Paul says, I know you're already sharing your life with one another, but I want you to do it more and more. I think today we could probably learn some of this from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Maybe maybe we learn it from them better than we can from, from us. I don't know much about um, African Christianity, but I but I do know that in many parts of Africa, churches with far fewer resources than we've got here in the United States are nevertheless doing this stuff. So what Paul is saying here is that this way of life is not an optional extra for those who feel like running a charity. It is to be an integral part of ordinary Christian existence. And the name for it is agape love. And that's why already in 2 Thessalonians, just as there were problems with widows in Acts chapter 6, in 2 Thessalonians, there's there's a problem about people who seem to be essentially saying, well, if the church is now this friendly society where they hand out free meals, and after all, Jesus is coming back soon anyway, I'll just give up working. You know, I'll, I'll say the prayers if I need to to get a free meal. Paul says no. That's not how this works. Sorry. If people will not work, then let them not eat. Yes, if, if people can't work, then you need to take care of them. But everyone needs to pitch in. And that's why Paul himself often sets the example. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that as an apostle, he has the right to not have to work for his living. He, to, to be supported so that he can minister full-time. And yet, even though Paul has the right to not work, Paul chooses to work a day job. And he insists that he does that, at least in part, in order to show that this is how the church should be, that we have to work to earn what we can so that we can share with those in need. And... For reasons I, I don't qu- quite understand, there's a, there's a whole slew of references to this in the little letter to Titus. And in Titus, it just seems to come up again and again and again, this, this notion of, of good works, and that's the phrase Paul uses there. Now, when we say good works, we run into a bit of a snag, okay? Because for, for those of us who are taught as good Protestants or evangelicals, 
when we when we hear the phrase good works, we we immediately it's it's like a knee jerk reaction. We can't even help it. We think, oh no no no, Martin Luther taught us, you know, that we're justified not by good works, but by grace through faith. And of course that's true. But when we run into this phrase good works in places like Titus in Ephesians chapter two, which we're going to get to in just a minute, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about doing moral deeds as opposed to doing bad moral deeds. And he's certainly not talking about doing good deeds as a, as a way to make ourselves acceptable to God. And, and I say that because I'm, I'm frequently astonished how often I run into to Protestants who seem to be so inoculated against legalism that they, 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 they just can't seem to fathom good deeds as anything other than an attempt to earn your way into God's good graces. You, you can't even hardly use that phrase or, or use the phrase about doing good works. And they immediately feel compelled to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're starting to sound legalistic now. Is it, you know, it's like, like I've seen this a lot. Christians who have, have pretty much uh, evicted the language of good works from their theology. But yet in Titus 2.14, Paul says, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people for his own who are zealous for good deeds. So does that mean just keeping a moral law so that God stays pleased with you? No! course not. It means looking out in the community around you, seeing what needs to be done, and then prayerfully accepting the vocation that I'm going to go and I'm going to put my shoulder to that part of the wheel. I've known um, several people over the years who, when they retired, they, they started helping with Meals on Wheels, where they'd They'd help take meals to uh, old people in their homes, and they and they kept on doing that. Some of them until they were older than the oldest people they were taking meals to. But for them, it was just a sense that, yeah, there's there's something I can do here, and it's not big and it's not flashy and it's not showy. It doesn't require a committee. It's I'm just going to do this. This is what it means to do good deeds. And Paul just seems to think this is this is part of the church's DNA all the way through. And so he says to Titus in Titus 3 verse 1, remind them to be ready for every good work. And the point is that if there's something that comes up that needs to be done in the community, the church, I think, should be at the forefront of doing it, whatever that may be. Again, Titus 3, verse 8, Paul says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is, these are good and profitable for everyone. And again, you can, you can almost feel the Protestant hackles rising, people saying, you're trying to justify yourself. No, we're not. And neither were they in the first century. You know, when, when God gave the law to uh, Israel through Moses, it, it, it was never, and we talk about it this way sometimes. We talk about the old law of Moses as though it was this, this is how you do it to make sure that I stay pleased with you. And it wasn't, it wasn't quite, it, not the way we talk about it. But when, 
when God gave the law to Israel through Moses, it, it wasn't, you keep this law and then you, you, you'll you be my people. It was, I've redeemed you. I've already redeemed you. You are the covenant people. I have brought you out of Egypt. You, you are my people. That's done. Now, here's how I want you to live. You're not, you're not earning anything. You're just expressing your gratitude and you're, 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 you're trying to live into the vocation I have for you in the larger world. That's all there is to it. Well, at the end of, of the book of Titus, I, sorry, I, I took a detour there for a minute, but at the end of, of the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 14, which I think is the last verse in the whole book of Titus, Paul says this. This is the way he closes his book, his letter. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet urgent needs so that they will not be unproductive. Did you hear that? The way we make sure we're not unproductive for God is not some of the ways that we think about it. The way to, to, to make sure we're not unproductive is to devote ourselves to good works to meet urgent needs. And the focus there is on meeting urgent needs. So as you look around in, in the community around you, where are the urgent needs? What needs do you see? It might be helpful to, to, to take a month and start really looking around. What are the urgent needs in your community? Here where I live, we have a tremendous drug problem. We have um, teenage pregnancy, is, as I understand it, is high. There's a lot of poverty here where I live. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could help with some of that. Maybe you could find a way to help find employment for young people. Maybe you can help poor people find medical care. Maybe you could do Meals on Wheels. Maybe you could help some single moms provide some guidance and fathering for their children. Maybe you could help start a play group so single mothers can have a good, safe place to leave their kids so that they can go to work and earn a living. If you look around you will find no end to the good needed things to which you can lend your time and your talents and your resources. And lots of churches have done things like that They've, and become a, a beacon of hope and healing in local communities, a sign of the generous, overflowing agape love of the Creator God in Jesus. And then Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite verses in all this. We are what he, and this is, this, I want to close with this because I think this is, this is good. We are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That's the New Revised Standard Version I'm quoting. But the phrase there, we are what he has made us, doesn't quite catch the, the, the feeling of, of the Greek there. Um, you can translate it that way. It's legitimate, but there's a, there's an emotion. There's a, there's a, I don't know. There's, there's some richness to that language that doesn't quite come out. Um, it, it comes out more like we are his poem. We are God's artwork. 
we are God's masterpiece. I'm not a big poetry guy, but, you know, there's lots of different kinds of poems. Some of us may be sonnets. Some of us may be haikus. Some of us, heaven help us, may be limericks. (laughs) But God has made us all as his masterpiece to be zealous. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God wants each of us to do in the world, each of us as individuals and as, as the church collectively, God wants us to do in the world what a poem or a song does. It opens up the possibility that there might be a new way of seeing things, a new way of going about things, something that instills hope in the, in the world around you. So that's what the church is supposed to be, created in the Messiah, the King, for good works that say to the world, hey folks, there's a different way to be human. That's what the family, the family of God, living together in love and sharing that love with the wider world, that's what we're supposed to be. And we learn that By reading and seeing the story of Jesus, we learn it again and again by standing at the foot of the cross in gratitude, and then we express it in outward-flowing agape. Romans 12 says the same thing um, a little differently. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And of course we do that in in the church, but we, we must do it in the wider world as well. In times of difficulties, the church is actually able to do things sometimes that can prevent things from getting out of hand even more than they are. The the church can often do things that nobody else can do. And that's called agape. What we're talking about is the church that models the Creator's overflowing generosity. A church that takes Jesus seriously. When He says, that you love one another as I, even as I has, have loved you, John 13, 34. And not just one another within this church, within, the, within this room, within your family, but that you be people like that for the world at large insofar as you have opportunity and in accordance with your gifts and abilities. And almost all of us can find ways to do that. And it will change the world. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, review us um, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. That that helps when you do that, that. That helps more people find this. And if you think this is helpful, don't just do it just because. But if you think that what we're doing here is helpful, Help us get the word out, okay? Um, please check out our website, thejesussociety.com. You can find us on YouTube and Odyssey. Uh, and if you search for the Jesus Society podcast on either of those platforms, you'll find us. And if you'd like to support our show and our related ministry here in Southern Middle Tennessee, you can click on the click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how. And there's links to all this in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and remember, you are 
greatly loved.